0: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Well, our guest today is Brian Brushwood, magician extraordinaire, critical thinker, skeptic, social engineer, uh, gad about town. I Like that last one the most. Uh, thank you, Brian. Thank you so much for being on our show, dude. Thank you so much for having me. I know mean, we've
2: talked about this for months. I'm glad we finally made it happen.
1: Yeah, Brushwood and I are uh, we're like BFFs from way back. Uh, yeah, we're roomies. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. So uh, yeah, Brushwood is a he's 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 a, a an amazing amazing kind of guy. One of the nicest guys you guys could ever meet. I really do mean that, Mister Brushwood
2: gonna ruin my reputation. Stop uh, this. That's
1: right. that's, he's, he's also a complete jerk. No, no. Um, so we wanted to talk today about lots of different topics, but before we get started, uh, in your own words, can we get sort of a kind of a uh a minute long or two minute long bio of who you are, how you got interested in stage magic and technology and all that kind of good stuff.
2: Sure, man. It's really weird. I'm in a transition phase right now because uh, if you'd asked me five years ago, the answer would have been dead simple. I would have told you I am a touring stage magician who tours colleges doing a punk rock magic show with fire eating, escapes, mind reading. I stick a nail in one eye, pops out the other eye. I break 30 pound bricks over my head. Uh, and it was, and that's, that's all I did. But as I've transitioned, we launched Scam School. I pitched it five years ago, right around this time, and uh, now it's four years strong, 220 episodes, and now I'm hosting four other podcasts as well. But I'm still doing the live stage shows, so my identif- my identity is kind of in transition right now, as I g- as I do more performing in front of the camera instead of in front of audiences, and now it's even more compu- complicated since. Uh, we just launched the Scam School book, which uh, hit number one in Canada and number three in the U.S. on the iTunes store on the day of launch.
1: So now I guess throw author in the mix as well. How about that? Huge props That's to you. Great. That's awesome. And uh, uh, you're also – the Scam School show has also been featured on discovery.com.
2: Yeah, they, uh, apparently it, it was the awesomest thing because I guess discovery.com had been talking with revision three and they were talking about some kind of partnership for a while. But since nothing was confirmed, nobody at revision three really told me because, you know, it's like they didn't want to tell me if there was nothing to tell. But I guess within minutes of the deal being finalized, discovery.com threw the first episode up under their life section. And so I found out about it because somebody on Twitter was like, Hey, uh, were you just not going to tell us that you joined
1: discovery.com? And
2: I'm like, what? <laughs> It's <laughs> so like take a look and sure enough there it is and it seems to be very well received. I'm excited about it.
1: That's fantastic. Yeah, and and as a, you know, as a friend and fan, I was very pleased to see that join our our family here. And it was a it was a surprise to me as well. I had not I had no knowledge of any sort of revision 3 uh work at that point. But I was very pleased to see you brought on board. And uh, anytime I can see talented people who uh who are good at 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 Entertaining and informing, it's always a pleasure. Uh, so we wanted to talk a little bit today about the fact that uh, since you have uh, extensive uh, experience being a stage magician, uh, that kind of gets your perspective on how stage magic has changed over the years uh, and how the role of technology has sort of played a part in that. And, that, uh, and just get an idea of what's important when you're a stage magician.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I would say as lo- as far back as you look, there's been a very tight relationship between technology and magic. And uh, what's the Arthur C. Clarke quote from Childhood's End? He says, uh, "Any sufficiently advanced technology is dising- indistinguishable from magic." Yes, mm-hmm. one of our favorites. Yeah, no, and, that, and magicians love that quote because it makes <laughs> us sound important. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, but you know, you look back, and uh, it seems like every time there's a novel new technology. Uh, there is a magician to either exploit it secretly in a stage show or to make it integral to his stage performance. You know, you go back, uh, you got, uh, Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin, uh, doing, uh, doing bullet catches, you know, and, in mm-hmm. this is in the 19th century when they're still using, uh, musket type rifles. You got, um, uh, you know, Penn and Teller. Doing uh, doing cell phone tricks, or, you know, and of course I, I do an illusion in my stage show now where I make a ghost appear on everyone's cell phone in the audience. And there's something about the novelty of new technology that that puts a finger in that same part of the brain that good sleight of hand does, where it's just it's just incomprehensible and you can't even understand how that's possible.
1: Mm-hmm. That's yeah, that's really cool. And uh, you know, not to not to pull back the veil too much uh, from from the whole magic thing, but Go ahead, pull it back. <laughs> in I'm the back here. In the biz, uh, you know, we might refer to certain certain types of uh technology specifically made for stage magic, uh often referred to as as gimmicks. Uh, a gimmick that you use in order to pull off a trick. And I think it's an interesting thing that I see with a lot of people who who just start off in magic. The the beginners often I think place more Stock in a gimmick than they do necessarily in stage presentation, and I'm curious as to what your view is on that. What do you think is the most important tool in any stage magician's uh, toolbox?
2: Uh, yeah, you nailed it right on the head. Uh, when I first started in magic, I I was what 18 years old and wandered into a magic shop in Austin, Texas that was run out of the garage of one of the local magicians. And since I didn't have a car at university. I had to take uh, two different buses it took me a 45 minutes just to go the 8 miles to get there and uh this guy talked to me for like 3 hours straight and I just had my mind blown because I had picked magic just out of the blue as as a hobby to try and I I didn't really know much about it but one of the things he told me that really stuck with me is like when when people first start doing magic they always want the self working no fail gimmicks. They want they want the tricky deck of cards to force someone a card rather than relying on sleight of hand because you know it's a confidence booster and it's something that, that always works. Uh, but then there's some kind of guilt that builds in you and makes you think like, oh I'm not really a magician. I should be doing everything with a real deck of cards. And you learn how to do these these fancy forces or these flourishes or you know turn over one card so it looks like a different card. And then uh, after a while, once you have that down you get lazy and say, why am I doing all this extra work when I'm <laughs> the one who notices the difference? And then you go back to using gimmicks. So it's but, a pendulum. Yeah, it is. But, but, but you come out the other side because it's one of those, once you get enough flight time, you build an engaging presentation. And I'll tell you, that's the biggest, I don't want to say betrayal. That's the biggest confusion. That people have A lot of folks get into magic when they're uh, 14 and hitting puberty because they feel powerless and they want a way to get other people to be interested in something they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so they follow the script the way it's written. They do the moves the way it's written. And either they get stuck in that rut and they become those socially awkward people who can't relate to other people except with a deck of cards in their hand or they – they pull through it and they realize wow it's not really they 'll realize like out of everything the one joke they made up on the spot got a bigger reaction than any of the prepackaged canned jokes that they had before then, and then they realize that that magic is just that social lubricant it's just that excuse to start interacting with someone and it's really it's your personality that matters way more than anything and you i mean you th- there are parts of, of Penn and Teller show that are utterly transparent to anyone who knows a thing or two about magic, and yet they are some of the most important, beautiful routines that they've ever written because they speak to something bigger than the trick they're doing.
1: Yeah, I, I'm always reminded of their routine of doing the cups and balls with the transparent cups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even as you're watching it, and even as they're explaining how they do it, doing it so seamlessly and so smoothly that it's so clear that they've, they've really polished that routine that it still feels like magic.
2: (laughs) Well, I think there's a real, uh, there's something that we really crave in the illusion of being educated. And I say the illusion because uh, because by the time that tri- ostensibly the whole purpose of that routine is for them to teach you how to do the cups of balls, because you see it done with transparent cups. Uh, by the time that's over, I would I would challenge you to a hundred thousand yen. That uh, what is that? A hundred bucks? <laughs> <laughs> Something <laughs> that like that. You could not recreate even one phase of that routine accurately. And likewise, one of the p- things people seem to like most of my stage show is I begin with this, uh, four and a half minute illustrated history of fire eating, right? Explain from the earliest references to resistance to fire to, uh, to, to the touring, uh, you know, stage performer Richardson in the 1600s. Uh, I explain the progression of fire eating and everyone's, oh, I just so educational. I learned so much. And I was like, you cannot repeat back one fact I gave you that entire time, but it's that blend of feeling like you're learning while you're seeing something visually interesting that seems to uh seems to sit well with people
1: excellent yeah um and it's it's interesting to me uh on this show in several different episodes uh and and Chris can, h- can attest to this because he had to listen to me do it just a second ago uh, I stress the importance of of critical thinking and really uh taking uh taking time to think things through because otherwise you just tend to accept stuff on a surface level and it becomes very easy to get uh tricked into things this is one of those things that magicians actually can depend upon depending on their their routines but uh but there does seem to be an interesting relationship between people who are are who get into stage magic and people who are advocates for critical thinking um Exactly. But, and,
2: and I mean, that all that all really began with Houdini. You know, Houdini was obsessed with trying to contact his dead mother. And this is at the height of spiritualism mm-hmm. in the uh, uh, you know early 20th century. But being a magician, he was offended when he went to spiritual mediums and saw they were using standard sleight of hand tricks. And yet these people with the straight face were saying, no, I'm contacting the spirit world. He's like, no, you got that palm. You know, and he would he would call them out. He was he was kind of. He's kind of an a-hole about it, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, and that tradition continues to this day. <laughs> well, it, well and, and to be honest,
2: nobody was doing it after Houdini until uh, James Randi came along. And back in the 1960s, it started off with, uh, with I, I don't know if it started with $100 out of his own pocket or a $1,000 out of his own pocket, but he's always offered this uh, this this dollar amount challenge to anyone who can demonstrate any psychic ESP or supernatural phenomenon under double-blind test conditions – uh, and uh, and nobody's gotten anywhere close and in fact the challenge is now of course the world famous million dollar challenge
1: and it actually extends to things beyond your typical you know the, the we typically think of things like being able to move something with your mind or prove that dowsing is real but it actually i've seen him extend that to uh to technological claims as well for example a monster com- cables. there you go that's where I was headed You're beating me to yeah, the punch no, that's there amazing.
2: And, and I guess it's true uh, – I, I think I read an article recently saying that a wire coat hanger demonstrated uh, the ability to perform just as well as a $100 monster cable.
0: Yeah, we, as a matter of fact, talked about that on a previous podcast.
1: Yeah, yeah. That
0: exact same subject.
1: Yeah, That's but awesome. which it's interesting to think that it's uh, a stage magician, someone who is is skilled in the arts of deception, yeah. who uh, who comes forward as an advocate for this. But then, but then again, you're talking about the people who know these tools because like you were saying with Houdini, they're, these are the tools of the trade. And they're seeing it being done not for entertainment purposes but to pull the wool over the eyes and, and try and bilk and people out of money.
0: Well, well I, I think – Oh go ahead uh, I was going to say uh in in a way, the people that that sell uh paraphernalia like that the uh the high end audio cables that work theoretically just as well as a, a coat hanger they're involved in an, uh, an act of showmanship as well oh certainly
2: showmanship and also there's there's certain things um when there's a market need for something, whether it exists or not, somebody will figure out a way to fill it. And that's why I don't think Monster Cables are going anywhere, is because whether or not it's true, if you have more money than cents, you want to believe that there's something better than the $10 cable. And and Monster's going to be there to say, yes, yes, there is. And here it is.
1: And And the thing that really drives me crazy is you could actually come into contact with a system that is – Measurably through very, very finely tuned instruments better than a a cheaper system, but to the human ear is indistinguishable. (laughs) Right. Because we're not capable of hearing that. (laughs) Well, and
2: and in fact, uh there's a man. It must have been. It was over a decade ago that I read in Wired magazine. And I wish I could remember the name of the audio engineer. That uh, he set up a super uh, calibrated sound system at one dance club, and people were complaining that it just it just wasn't loud. And meanwhile, he's looking at the decibel meter, and this thing's like almost damaging their hearing. It's so loud. So he goes to Radio Shack and gets a. Uh, I think it was like a a, a twenty five cent in Peter. That would, that would clip the highest end. But the, the audio cue of hearing the high ends being clipped made them think that the speakers were maxed. And even though the volume was actually lower, people reported how much more they liked the music, how much louder it was.
1: That's, that, now that, I don't find that hard to believe, but it is, it is pretty amazing.
2: It is amazing. I'll tell you, man, it's amazing to me, uh, what, what a mystery our own minds are. And that's one of the things, my favorite, my, one of the greatest things I got to do. At the University of Texas was I was part of this uh, honors program where they only took one hundred and fifty students each year and they 'd have uh, over a thousand applicants. but you could take you took pretty much what they told you the first couple of years, but the last two years you took whatever classes were related to your thesis. you had to have a thesis in order to graduate, and some of the students would write their first novel, some of them would write these two three hundred page biographies on obscure figures from history, and I was doing magic on the side at this point. And I thought, well, maybe it would be awesome if I could get away with writing a paper on the history of magic because that would be fun. Or even better, if I could claim that it was my thesis to get a trick published in one of these magic journals. So, you know, still putting a significant amount of work on myself, but at least it would be fun and magic related. And when I went in to pitch my idea to the dean, she said, well, what do you want to do uh, for your thesis? And I got as far as saying, uh, well, for the last couple of years, I've been doing magic on the side. And as I drew in a breath to continue, she interrupted saying – and you want to do a magic show as a creative <laughs> writing thesis. What a great idea. And so, uh, as a result, I got to take, uh, whatever courses I wanted for the last two years, as long as I could justify it being related to magic. So I took, uh, courses on, uh, you know, on artificial intelligence, on psychology, on history of witchcraft, on pseudoscience and the paranormal. Uh, it was, it was amazing, but it was those courses on brain development that really cemented in my mind what wonderful flawed machines we all are and once you see once you spend a few years deceiving people and even better hearing back from people after the fact having them describe to you what they think you did or what they remember you doing it is unreal how wrong all of our memories are all the time on everything and once you accept that i find I find I'm a lot happier about everything. I don't argue anymore. Like, if I remember something happening one way and someone remembers it another way, I'm like, ah, eh, whatever. I'm pro- we're probably both wrong. Yeah. Probably something like that. And likewise, when you look at, um, you know, eyewitness testimony, you, you, you devalue it severely because you understand that even if they're not intentionally lying to themselves, they, uh, they, th- there's just no way that they can accurately remember anything.
1: So you're making me feel a lot more comfortable about the fact that I offload a lot of my own mental, uh, uh, my my own mental practices onto my technology now. <laughs> oh, you
2: should, you should, and in fact, uh, I I think that uh, we're entering an age where, uh, unfortunately, in the legal system right now, we still are in a place where uh, where we value eyewitness testimony far more than we should mm-hmm. because there's, and if you've if you're familiar with the work of Elizabeth Loftus, uh, it is. Unreal. They, they've been able to induce false memories in other people by asking le- leading questions. Mm-hmm. There was one story where they, they took a, uh, a, a young kid named Chris and they laid out five stories. Four of them were tales that actually happened to him. One was a totally made-up story about being lost at the mall. And they asked a bunch of questions about all five. And, uh, and then, like two weeks later, they said, well, which of these – one of these was a made-up story that never happened to you, Chris. Uh, which one was the one that we made up? And he picked an actual story from his past as being a made-up one because he couldn't believe that he wasn't lost at the mall at age five.
1: It's kind of like – wasn't there that story about the other uh, the other experiment with the showing an ad, a fake ad for some popcorn uh, to some people during a, a thing? And then like a survey two weeks later, they asked them how the popcorn was. But no one in the study had actually had any popcorn, but they all remembered trying it and mm-hmm. that it was delicious because of the ad.
2: <laughs> oh, wow. I yeah. haven't heard –
1: no, that was that was uh just I think that was in 2011 when I heard that. I think I heard that on Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Um, that's fantastic. Yeah.
0: yeah, and this is why focus groups aren't so great for marketing purposes. because yeah. <laughs> the leader often sort of steers it in the direction of the of what the uh, the company that has organized this focus group is trying to achieve. And like, oh, hey, look, it works. Yeah, So right. Just go with it.
2: Yeah, which well, kind of. That's the importance of uh, double-blind experimentation, which we, you know, of course, uh, they do very, very well with the with the FDA and for, or, you know, new drugs. But right. when it comes to consumer marketing, there's probably not much of a reason to try that.
1: And for those out there who don't know what a double-blind test is, all right. So a blind test means that the person who's taking the test has no knowledge of whether or not they are in a control group or the test group. Double-blind is that the person administering the test also does not know if that person if they are administering. A test to the control group or to the test group, uh, yeah. so that that it it limits the chance that data will be uh, leaked to a test subject and uh, influence his or her results.
2: Yeah, that, uh, one of the earliest cases of that where it's so important is, uh, Michel-Eugène Chevreul is a French scientist. And this is, uh, back in the, I believe the 19th century when dowsing was super popular. And dowsing is, of course, you know, finding water with a forked stick or holding a pendulum over a substance and it swings one way if it's supposed to be one thing or swings another way if it's another. And, uh, when he tried it, he set out – the way he tried it was, of course, he set out a bowl of mercury, held out the pendulum, and the thing started swinging like crazy, he pulled the mercury away, and it stayed totally still. still. And he was like, holy crap, maybe there's something to this. Uh, although he didn't say that because he was French. He said <laughs> – Soccer crap.
1: <laughs> exactly. Soccer crap.
2: But then, but then he had it but, – but he had the idea. He had his assistant set up a partition and he just held out the pendulum and and the the, the assistant would either set down an empty bowl or a bowl filled with mercury. And once he didn't know which, uh, which one it was, it didn't do anything.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that James Randi had suggested a similar test where it would involve uh, burying uh, – uh, PVC pipes with water in them for example under a certain area of land covering it all up and then the person administering the test would have no idea where the the PVC pipe actually was they would just observe the the test subjects as they would walk across and uh the test subjects would let them know if they had found a hit or not and that that would be a you know a typical very simple double blind test uh, although yeah, the actual administration would require more but
2: uh, out of everybody who goes for the James Randi Million Dollar Prize, uh, the dowsers seem to be the most intense because they truly believe what they're doing is a science. And the reason they truly believe it is because they have so many stories of personal validation, where they looked for water pipes behind the wall and they found them. They looked for water at their uncle's farm and they found it. Or, uh, you know, they they look for a lost object, and they find it. And the problem is, uh, you can be ru- you can get lucky, and you can. Maybe you rely on your intuition uh and not realize you're you're doing that, so even if they're right and get a hit, that doesn't mean that it proves that dowsing works. it means that it proves that uh, that either you know one of the other things happened,
1: yeah, yeah, and this kind of leads us in this whole this whole belief uh the, the fact that we're we we are fallible uh, constructs you know we we don't, we make mistakes and often we don't realize we're making the mistakes, and that there are ways of tweaking that. That kind of leads into the the discussion I wanted to have about social engineering now you you have your show Scam School, which has a lot to do with social engineering. Uh, can you explain to our listeners what is social engineering?
2: Oh, I think the definition is is clinically something like um, you know a set of tools designed to induce a certain response in people in certain environments uh, I, I just claim that it's cheap, dirty psychological tricks to get people to do what you want right. Uh, but whether it's you know and on scam school we try to keep it light so more often than not uh we we explain the ways that you can use uh you know magic tricks or psychological manipulation to get the girl's phone number or to win free beers off of your friends uh but uh one of the best experiences that I got to have was uh, uh what 3 years ago I got selected at South by Southwest to give a keynote presentation on uh social engineering scam your way into anything or from anyone and in the research putting together on that, I read um, a number of books, including Robert Cialdini's *Influence*, which is fantastic. So many amazing tidbits in there that are all based on uh, you know real psychological surveys. Stuff like um, uh, there's these fixed action pattern patterns, these psychological backdoors that that anyone from con artists to magicians can use to to make people feel obligated to do certain things. For example, uh, reciprocation. There was a uh, uh, Dennis Regan did this. Uh, fake art experiment where he had a group of people come in and they were, either, they were assigned in, in twos. Now, one of them was a real experimentee, the other was a fake experimentee, and they spent all day reviewing art on a scale of one to five. I love it, I hate it, this, that, and the other. And about halfway, it was time to take a break, and so Mr. Fake Tester goes off to the bathroom. And when he comes back, one of two things would happen. Either he came back empty-handed and they just went back to work, or he came back with with two cokes in his hand, and he would say, "Hey, I went to the bathroom, and I, I grabbed myself a coke, and I figured I'd grab one for you. Here you go, enjoy a coke." And then they go back to testing. And then at the very end of the day, Mister Fake Tester would in both in both groups say, uh, "Hey, I hate to bug you about this, but we're doing this raffle for work, and if if I sell enough, there's a chance I could win a car. Uh, as, as many as you could buy, the more the better." And uh, they measured how many of these uh, of these tickets he would sell. And under reciprocation, people bought uh, either two or three times as much as they did without reciprocation. Now, some people say, like, okay, well, if you, maybe maybe when they gave him a coke, they liked the guy more, and that's why they went ahead and uh, and bought more tickets. But it turns out that wasn't the case. Exit surveys showed that even if they actively disliked the uh, Mr. Fake Tester, they still bought two or three times more than they would without reciprocation.
1: Socially impelled to buy those those tickets.
2: Yeah, and it's, it's that we hate owing people anything. And there's there's other things like uh, social proof. There's, uh, there's the idea that uh, the trappings of authority – force people to to uh, to comply even if that that authority is just a well-tailored suit. They did studies where they they measure how many people would follow when somebody started jaywalking and if that person was just work, wearing work clothes, they would be, you know, x number of people would start following if you started jaywalking, but when it was a guy in a suit, three times as many people would follow him.
1: Yeah, I I remember when I was in high school, I remember seeing a demonstration where I just thought it was incredibly cruel at the time, but it was a, it was a, a fast talker. It was a guy who just spoke in in jargon, meaningless jargon, uh, and demonstrating how uh, how social pressures would make people agree to things even if they had no idea what was being said, and uh, would demonstrate it by bringing someone who who was unaware of the the fact that he was you know just a, a flim flam guy you know thought that he was uh, was introduced to him as if he were an expert in a particular subject. And then he just started uh, having this conversation and saying that after it was over, said, "Well, the reason why she never stopped me to ask what was going on is there's this social pressure on her to act like she understands it, and you know it it it, it would be it would be mortifying to admit that you don't know what what someone meant when they said something to you in front of a crowd of other people."
2: Yes. Well, and in fact, that's a that's probably the biggest component of what makes stage hypnosis possible. People always ask whether or not hypnosis is real or not. It's like it's 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 real to the extent that you believe it's real. Uh, but but the biggest factor is the ability. Like uh, you'll notice that most hypnosis shows begin with uh, with very small tests, and it's very clear that this is a test. Like I'm telling you what to do. Um, and imagine this, and react as if it's real. And then he says, imagine this, imagine this. And at some point, he stops saying imagine, but instead he just says, now you're hot, and now you start acting like you're hot because that's what you've been doing. And then he says, now you're cold, and now you're fanning yourself, or you're shivering because you're cold. And And then he just starts setting up scenes, and at some point, you've entered this contract where he says what to do, and you act it out. And at some point, you realize 20 minutes in, that you're committed 100% and the only way out is to is to ruin the show yeah. and stuff and be like I'm not, I'm not hypnotized. So it's like uh, and hypnosis is real in that there's no way I could just walk up to somebody and say, "Hey, get on stage and pretend to be Lady Gaga." They'd be like, "No, absolutely not." But hypnosis is real in that it is a construct that creates a situation where somebody goes way outside of their comfort zone because that is a safer choice than than blowing up and ruining the the stage show and on top of that there is uh, i i don't want to take away from stage hy- hypnotists because there is an aspect to it where people when they vividly imagine something strong enough it does induce a, a physical response if you've ever been to a movie and laughed or cried you know you're crying about a person who never existed and a thing that never happened but you make it real in your mind you know that's 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 as real as hypnosis is.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I have to tell you, Brian, that if you ever ask me to get up on stage and pretend to be Lady Gaga, that's a pact I am willing to make with you right here and now. (laughs) Good, good. (laughs) Because no hypnosis necessary. You have sold, sir. Uh, uh, So the reason why I wanted to bring up social engineering is that it's not just important in things like, like stage magic, but also that's one of those tools that that a lot of of people we call hackers use in order to get uh, access to to secure systems. It has has nothing to do with sitting down at a computer, typing in three different passwords, and the third one's the one that works, the, despite the way Hollywood would have us believe. But sure, has sure. M- more frequently has something to do with befriending someone or or posing as a an, uh, a maintenance worker of some sort, and just engineering your way through people to get access to secure systems, because that's way easier than trying to figure out how to break through a a technological secure system.
2: Yeah, absolutely. If you think of uh, technology as a sealed room, I mean, you could either try to pick that lock or you could beat down the door. Or you could just ask nicely for the person behind the counter to open it for you. Yes. And, and obviously, there's a lot of people where that last one works best. And, and the far and away, the best example of this is if, if you haven't read the original book, Catch Me If You Can, mm-hmm. uh, it's way better. The movie was, was fine, but the book is unreal because it's actually written in the voice of Frank Abagnale, very honestly talking about, uh, uh his exploits, you know, over the, the, what, two or three years that he flew all around the world cashing over million dollars in bogus checks. That's one where it's, it's a case where he realized that wearing the trappings of authority by looking like a doctor or looking like a pilot, he was able to pass checks that otherwise would never pass muster. People would be like, this is obviously bogus. Get out of here. We'll call the cops. But, but when it's a, when it's a pilot, you know, held in such high regard, people just shut up and cashed him.
0: Yeah. And, uh, Kevin Mitnick's book too, that, that, uh, came out recently has been, uh, has been doing well and I think it's the same thing as the person just uh, explaining what what he was doing at the time Um, also I just as an aside that we probably shouldn't get into I I find it kind of amusing that we're talking about social engineering in an election year here in the United States
2: (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah no I mean that's uh, boy I mean you'll see you'll see all kinds of, of trappings of authority that's why part of the reason the little things, like people can't wait to get uh, to that level of success where they can have the Secret Service around them, because that starts to reinforce the idea that this candidate's important, and it starts to uh, reaffirm that the, the trappings of authority become as important as actual authority.
1: Yeah, I'm just waiting to reach that level of success where I can get a decent table at a restaurant. <laughs> That's,
2: <laughs> I like to set realistic goals. I'll tell you what, man. It is unreal uh, what a little, what one phone call will do in in front of me. My friend uh, Dan Martin is one of these guys who scams his way into upgrades left and right. He picks up (laughs) the phone. And pretends to be his own manager. He, uh, he gives another name and says, you know, I'm the manager for Daniel Martin. You've probably seen him on list a bunch of different stuff. And of course, nobody wants to admit that they don't know who the hell Dan Dan Martin is. Right. And they're like, Oh, yes. No, that's great. And he's like, well, listen, here's the thing. He's got a very important client that he's trying to impress. We understand there's an hour and a half wait. Is there any way you guys can take care of us? And, uh, and, and sure enough, you know, and I've seen him do it where we, we skipped an hour long line to go to the steakhouse. We sit down. And then uh, the management comes over and says uh, oh thank you mr martin we're so glad to have you here uh, i understand you have a celebrity guest and without missing a beat he turns to my assistant at the time uh, uh, captain mg we called him uh, this big tall guy is just like yeah you probably you probably seen him in the office he's one of the guys who works down in the in the warehouse and instantly people are like oh i think i do remember you in a couple of because <laughs> again nobody wants to admit that they don't remember the guy and and dan's whole idea is like look man i'm doing these people a favor they're going to go home and talk about the celebrity.'" <laughs>
1: Oh, gosh. Oh, this reminds me of a story my dad tells. Um, So my dad's a science fiction author and an English professor and uh, occasionally would teach uh, a stint down at the Governor's Honors Program, which in Georgia is a program that uh, selects – I think it's around – between 600 and 700 high school students to study for a summer – uh, in in very focused groups depending upon you know whatever their major is for that program uh, I actually went in communicative arts which was you know English uh, when uh, back in back in 1992 but uh, before that my dad was teaching there in the 80s and he tells a story about how he and some of the other teachers uh, went to I think it was like a, a international house of pancakes or something like that some some sort of diner and they walked in and one of their one of their fellow teachers, Uh, There's an African American fellow who wore, uh, wore traditional um, uh, African garments occasionally. And they just decided on a whim as they walked in that he was a visiting dignitary from Africa.
0: And and he
1: put on the whole role of it and even went so far as saying, these greets, what is greets? I, I will take greet. (laughs) <laughs> I said, oh honey you're going to need more than one uh so but yeah they tell the whole story about how they they ended up the the check was picked up and da- dad's the sort where it was a very funny story but you could tell there was still that little bit of guilt <laughs> Yeah, well,
2: I and mean, that's, that's the, that's the problem with, uh, magi- magic in general, is there's some part of me that, that is compelled. I think that's part of why scam school is good for my soul, because I don't want to be that, that, that jerk who goes around letting people believe he has wizard powers, and there's some part of me that wants to tell everyone, it's all a lie!
1: Yeah. Which is why I really do respect stage magicians who, who, go out of their way to say, all right, I'm going to perform an illusion for you. And, you know, it's it's very clear that they're they're telling you up front. And they said, but if you're willing to go with me on this trip, you're going to see something amazing. And, yes. uh, and I mean, Penn, Penn and Teller do some great stuff where they even go so far as to say, you could question how we do it, but if you learn the answer, then it just sort of takes away from the performance. The question we wish you would ask us is, why do we do it? Yeah. I'm like, wow. (laughs) What's,
2: what's the quote that we, uh, the magicians say? Magicians are guarding an empty vault. Like, whatever it is you think the method is, is way more fantastic than, than how it actually is. Nothing but disappointment lay on the other side of that vault door. Except in, there are a few cases where, uh, where the actual method is even more interesting than the trick itself. And once that's true, then, then by all means, teach the entire thing. And in fact, Um, It used to be the the very first episode of Scam School we did was something called The Human Chimney, where you essentially make smoke appear from nowhere out of your lungs. And uh, it got great reactions when I did it, but everybody thought the method everybody assumed was happening was not nearly as interesting as the science behind what happens when you, uh, you secretly inhale this poisonous white, white phosphor and the white phosphor saps out all of the moisture out of your lungs, creating this super thick water vapor. And it, uh, once I found that I get much more joy and a bigger re- reaction out of people by explaining how it's done and encouraging them to try it because it's, it's interesting when a magician can make smoke appear out of the lungs. It's magic when somebody could do it to themselves.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I, I've even heard magicians talk about how they would see someone do uh, like some close-up magic, and uh, and they would just you know they knew a way of doing it, and that was immediately what they go to. They assume that that's the way, and then when it's demonstrated that there's a different way, and it might be an incredibly difficult. <laughs> and and complex way that requires lots more practice than the simple way, but stage magicians say, Wow, that was amazing. <laughs> yeah,
2: well, as a matter of fact, uh the, the fantastic performer, Tom Mullica is a legend in magic. He's one of the most talented slide of hound artists out there and he's got that that gift of personality and charisma and he did this he has this uh like three and a half minute routine where he appears to eat uh, one one by one, an entire box of cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's actually heavy duty. And these are lit cigarettes. He lights them all. He smokes them all at once. He has this, you know, it's like that Homer Simpson photo of the mouthful of cigarettes. Yeah. Uh, he does that and then appears to swallow all of them. And there's heavy duty, awesome sleight of hand going on in there. But he goes to uh, FISM. And if you don't know, FISM is like the Olympics of magic. They have it, I think, every third or second year. Uh, a couple of years ago, it was in, in China. But he goes to FISM and just totally bombs because all of the judges just assumed this guy 's a freak who just swallowed a bunch of lit cigarettes. <laughs> nobody knew it was magic, and as a result he uh, he didn 't win wow yeah isn 't that isn't that crazy
1: that's that 's almost an accolade awesome enough all on its own i 'm sure yeah that 's part of it i 'm sure that 's why the story's being told <laughs> well, to transition out of this I, I wanted to talk more about some of the other projects you 've worked on, some of which are. Uh, closely related to technology in fact one of these we've we've talked about on our show in the past and i think i might have even talked about this before i met you which is the whole idea of leaving behind a virtual ghost oh yeah i remember that yeah i think i think it might have been before we we had uh met each other yeah that's the uh the
2: afterlife.me project um if you uh, we don't really have anything up there but if you want to sign up to be notified when it's uh uh, I'm going to make sure it's actually still live here before. I- <laughs> <laughs> That's a f t e r l y f e . m e. Afterlife.me. Uh it's it's the, the nuts and bolts are are being tinkered with by uh Patrick Delahanty who's a, a super talented uh web developer and uh you're starting to see similar projects pop up but all of them they're all sanctimonious and they're all like you know we're here to help with the grieving process and we're here to we're here to clean up your data after you pass away. Afterlife.me is freaking honest. Afterlife.me is an opportunity to become a virtual ghost, just to annoy and freak out everyone for the rest of eternity. Uh, and essentially, what happens is it's a dead man switch, where every every year on your birthday, you log in and let it know you're alive, and of course, it'll bug you by email to uh to to tell you to um you know make sure to check in but if it doesn't hear back it assumes you're dead and then it takes all of your past tweets and just starts repeating them on the same times at the same dates that you said it year after year and what i love about this is isn't that what ghosts are in history are items that don't know they're dead these these echoes that think they're going about the daily business of their life when they're not, and the idea that we could do that digitally forever—you know—it's like picking up the kids. Merry Christmas, everyone! <laughs> birthday in the bank. You know, all these things that you say year after year can become these digital echoes for all et- eternity. Uh, I, I think it's really cool as an art project, and um, you know, I. Uh, some people say it's tacky. Yes, it very likely is, but a lot of art. Can be tacky. And I think it's really cool performance art.
1: Personally, I, I love it. I mean, I just love the idea of someone reading a tweet and saying, oh, Jonathan's been dead for 20 years and he's still slamming the iPad. Yeah. <laughs> it, well, and
2: think about this. Well, and that'll be the other thing too. It's like, uh, it'll be more hilarious to hear you talking about stuff that, uh, yeah, that doesn't like, t- like, Amy Winehouse died. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, you know, I think that'll, that'll become funny over time. But also think about the at replies where, where all of a sudden you, you whisper happy birthday to someone from, <laughs> Five years after the fact.
1: This just tells me that I just need to make a lot more younger friends. That's right. Because <laughs> <laughs> I I do want to irritate people after. I, I mean I, I do it while I'm alive. Why would I want to stop after I'm dead? I want to irritate people. So yes. yeah, no, it's a great idea. As soon as I heard it, I I completely appreciated it for what it was. Being being sort of a mischievous uh, prank puller myself, I found it I found it incredibly appealing. Um, so why don't we talk about? Uh, you can talk about some of the other shows you do because we haven't really covered any of those. You've got some stuff uh, uh, on the Twit Network, for example, and yeah. uh, also you. I, I do want to hear more about your experience with the Scam School ebook, please.
2: Yeah, well, uh, Scam School, of course, is is the big coming out party that I had for, with the internet. Um, but a lot of people were surprised when it turns out I knew anything about technology as well. My <laughs> my past life. I, uh, I spent a, a year testing video games for Rockwell Semiconductors for a year, which was awesome. And then I spent, uh, almost three years at Dell and their high-end sales support, you know, uh, designing networks for small businesses or building high-end systems for, you know, 3D modelers, animators, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, that's the first time I did This Week in Tech. It just seemed like a natural fit. And uh, Leo was nice enough to give me a, a number of shows to do, and now I'm doing three programs over there, including uh, NSFW is is uh, an utterly volatile powder keg where we never know what's going to happen. Half the time it blows up in our face. Every so often we have moments of awesome hilarity. Um, it's it's almost it's a very weird show because it's almost openly hostile to new people trying to visit it. So if you don't understand what's going on, just give it a couple more episodes and see if it sinks in. Yeah, It's, it's kind of like your head with a hammer. feels really good. Anytime stuff.
1: you have Justin Robert Young involved, there's going to be volatility.
2: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, and then I started hosting a frame rate with Tom Merritt, which is a whole show about this whole emerging space with new media. Mm-hmm. This is, in many ways, the most exciting time to be a broadcaster or be somebody who's interested in reaching a large audience of all time because um, essentially we're seeing exactly now the exact same thing that happened in the 1950s with broadcast television and then in the 1970s With cable television, when when broadcast television began, there was no market because nobody had TVs. Nobody knew what to do and nobody had any money. So they just took their radio figures and threw them in front of a screen. And then they figured out that television is a different medium than these other things. And they were able to tell their own unique stories in their own unique ways. Same thing happened in the 70s with cable. Nobody was watching. So all of a sudden there's all this bandwidth, all these channels. People are just throwing stuff. Ted Turner takes his local TBS, WTBS station and throws it, calls it a super station. But then it, all of a sudden it becomes TBS, this powerhouse. Same thing with CNN. It wasn't even possible to have a 24 hour news network beforehand. So nowadays we're in the wild west of new media with just dis- distribution from YouTube, with podcasting, with, uh, with pretty much anyone who's got a story to tell now has a global opportunity to, to reach an audience worldwide and it cost them nothing there's no barrier to access and it's a it's this awesome land rush to see who can become king of which little circuits out there because whoever gets there first has a huge advantage that's the reason CNN was number 1 for so long was because it was the first 24-hour cable network and it was everyone else was was just couldn't couldn't top it mm-hmm. and so likewise that was the big push for why I did uh scam school so anyway that's what frame rate is about is about the Emerging digital transition, watching some new media stars transition to television and, and vice versa. And, uh, and of course now we're hosting Game On on, uh, on Twit, which is every Sunday night live. We talk about, uh, video game news and reviews.
1: Yep. And that's with Veronica Belmont. Yes.
2: Who, yeah. Who, I should lead off with that. Everyone like. <laughs> To me, And that's fine.
1: Yeah, it's you know, Veronica. I I you know, I love her. Uh, she um she has shot me the look of death at least three times in my life, and I have survived. So <laughs> I got it once or twice it's, myself. It's it, there's a hair trigger, you know. <laughs> just
2: just uh, tread it, on the right ground. I don't want to get in trouble, but uh, one of my favorite things about hosting Game On is is seeing the the Veronica Belmont that that will never show herself on the internet. <laughs> but, she is she is delightfully, hilariously crass.
1: She is a wonderful person, and I, that's all I am going to say about this because I'm hosting this <laughs> show. Brian Brushwood had other things to say, but Jonathan Strickland just loves her. All right, so um, uh, now that we've got that clear, uh, yeah. So tell tell us more about this ebook.
2: Oh my God! So uh, for years I've been. Flapping my gums about how I want to do a book for the scam school book. And originally I had all these designs on a physical book that would have like magic-y kind of properties to it. Uh, the problem, of course, is that physical media, unless you get picked up by a big publisher who wants to invest $100,000, uh, it's extremely, imp- uh, it, 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 the development costs are, are, are high. The printing costs are high, especially if you want to do something non-standard or tricky with the pages. Uh, and you miss out on what's great about Scam School because, of course, we have all these episodes. And the only way to get from a book to an episode would be like a kludgy kind of QR code thing. And have you ever used that? Have, have any of you guys ever read a book that had QR codes and actually pulled out your phone and clicked on it, and went to the page?
1: Once or twice, but you know it's it's definitely it's definitely. There's a barrier there. It's just like with podcasts and and suggesting like we we tell in our podcast for people to go and read the articles and how stuff works, mm-hmm. but that's kind of challenging because you know it's two different separate media. So to tell someone to go and and read this article and the article is amazing and that it goes into far more detail than we ever could in a podcast and has you know visual effects and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, it's 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 a, a smaller number of people who make that transition. We love well, those people. And we would love that number to grow, but we understand it's, it's two different media. And often, you know, what you're doing in one instance is not really, you you don't, there's no way to port it over easily. Like if I'm mowing the lawn and listening to a podcast, I'm obviously not going to jump online and read an article about, you know, quantum suicide.
2: Exactly. So it's one of those things where it's like you need to have as smooth a transition as possible. And uh about uh, I guess 2 years ago, uh when Kindle really started to get more popular and of course uh iTunes started up their iBook store, I was like, "Oh, dude, then it's got to be it's got to be ebooks." And so we we converted some of my old books to ebooks and we figured out really fast what a nightmare this this entire industry is in right now mm-hmm. uh, as far as like proper formatting you got competing formats uh, .mobi .epub they 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 handle stuff differently they have different capabilities in dot, uh, in .mobi with a kindle format it's not even possible to wrap text around an image mm-hmm. all you can have is text 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 block here's an image and you you, you can't control the size of it it'll it'll reformat stuff uh, it, it was so difficult to try to build this tool that I really became disheartened as far as ever reaching that goal of what I wanted to do, of have something that was rich media, that was detailed, that was pretty, that was highly interactive and had embedded media content. Uh, but then along comes this company, Vook, That's v o o k dot com. And they uh, essentially are trying to create a their own platform that once you create the book in Vook, you press publish and it converts it To .mobi .epub and it and it sends it out to to Barnes and Noble to to Amazon and to iTunes. So with one-click publishing, you're able to create really good-looking eBooks and with rich embedded media. And so we uh, we participated in their beta program, which was a little bit harrowing because there were times where the entire book would vanish or chapter (laughs) would suddenly disappear. We get on the phone, we're like, "What's going on?" They're like, "Don't worry, we'll fix it. It's (laughs) magic." Exactly. Yeah, like it's beta. But they, uh, but they had a, by the time we were done with the book, I'm, I was extraordinarily proud of it. It is, it is unlike any other ebook I've seen in that it's, uh, it's almost like a Harry Potter book where, where the pictures and illustrations come alive. There's, uh, there's 70 audio commentary. I've never seen audio commentary tracks for chapters in a book before. Uh, and, and it's amazing because the, the book itself is, is a collection of 80 plus tricks from the scam school series uh, these are all things that are either street cons to watch out for or ways to score a free drink some kick-ass magic tricks and a few really nasty pranks to pull on your friends <laughs> and it's i love the 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 media format because i can spend two paragraphs explaining how to hold your pinky when you're holding a deck of cards uh but none of that's as useful as when you press when you press on the on the photo, and all of a sudden it comes alive and illustrates animated for you and shows you exactly what you're supposed to do. So it's got it's got 70-plus audio commentary tracks and 40-plus uh, illustrations. And out of everything, I'm most pleased with the fact that Teller of Penn & Teller allowed me to publish an essay he wrote me 17 years ago when I was uh, 19 years old uh, and looking for my place in magic. I wrote a letter to Teller and he was kind enough to write a response uh like a four-page essay wow. talking about creativity and magic and uh uh being able to publish that and sp- and share the word on that has been extremely gratifying so I, I am very very happy if you go to scamschoolbook.com you can find all all the different platforms
1: fantastic yeah and that that is exciting to me because you know we've been talking about this whole electronic book uh, uh medium and and what the potential is and that uh, it's been several years in the making, and it and it's so exciting that it looks like now we're getting to the point where people are actually really cracking that nut, where they've managed to find a way to incorporate the different abilities you have in something like a, a web-based presence and uh, the, the 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 things you have within electronic text, and that it's being brought together in ways to to really cater to a wider audience. Really, because you know, we all know that people. Favor different ways to learn information. You know, some people, sure. some people reading text—that's what they like, and some people they have to see it work for it to really have an impact. And this
2: is—I uh, was going to say—this is uh, an important phase we're entering with ebooks Where just as we figured out that television is not radio with pictures, ebooks are not. Books on your iPad. It's it's an inherently different platform with different strengths and we- weaknesses. And I honestly feel like uh, like uh, the scam school book is the first book on the shelves you know this minute that truly takes advantage of that unique nature and speaks the language of digital ebooks. And the reviews seem to indicate that uh, that there is something special happening
1: there. That's awesome. Yeah, and I I mean I think the next if I were to put on my prognosticator hat I would say the next uh, step. As far as the the medium starting to come into its own, uh, the ebook is is what's happening now. I think the next step is augmented reality because right now we're seeing it used in things like commercials and that kind of – or games. But the idea of having a world of information overlaid on top of the real world around you and anchoring that information in the world – uh, to give it real and impactful meaning to the person who's who's looking at it and whatever context that might be because there could be endless number of contexts for any particular region uh, that to me uh, that's the that's why i'm i keep on whenever i get an opportunity i keep on mentioning uh, google if you're making those glasses i want a pair
2: absolutely that's how i fact, have to work that I- in I fully believe that uh that uh, you're already seeing this in the military mm-hmm. the video gamification of your job and uh and they are um I don't know I guess the military really pioneered the idea of of badges and medals and and achievements but uh but you know of course we see it in stuff like World of Warcraft when you're grinding all the time and a friend of mine is now a uh, he was the CEO of a company he put together a business plan to try to pitch the idea of of, of, of an achievement-based system for all of his employees based on their class and their and their missions uh, or their tasks where they could they could level up and get perks they could win badges it, the whole thing was clearly modeled right after world of warcraft and he uh, uh I, I don't know if he ever implemented it but it was so obviously right when i read it that i fully expect us to see more companies running their businesses like a video game
1: I, I'm right there with you. I expect that as well, especially since gamification is still a, an incredibly powerful buzzword in the business world. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, well, Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. This has been a, a, a great discussion. Really fascinating.
2: Dude, anytime you guys want me to talk about anything, just give me a call.
1: We will take you up on that. Uh, guys, uh, definitely check out Brian Brushwood's work. Check out his Scam School ebook. Uh, the guy does some pretty amazing stuff and, uh, and he's just a super dude. So, uh, everyone check that out and we will talk to you again really soon.